Paul applies the concept of Christ being at the core of our marriage, our family, and our work. Listen, listen to how Jesus centered the following statements are. Listen to this. Wives, submit to your husband. That's not it, is it? As is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That comes from Ephesians chapter 5. Children, obey your parents. This pleases the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters, fearing the Lord. Work heartily as for the Lord, for you are serving the Lord Christ. Masters, treat your slaves justly, knowing you have a master in heaven. So the section that we are, we are in makes a pretty clear point for you and for me. It is connected to Jesus. Life is connected to Jesus. Jesus gloriously invades our marriage, our family, our work. Or to say it this way, Jesus-centeredness affects every area of our life. Now, there's some of you who are not married. Raise your hand. Be honest. Not married. Okay, you're going, can I just go now? Here's the reality. You need to listen to this. Because whether or not you get married, you are going to know people in your Christian communities who are married or who are going to get married. So this immediately applies to you today. Some of you are not husbands. But man, you're, you're hoping someday. And it's my, maybe even the person you're sitting next to. You're going, Lord Jesus, please, this one. Or, or women, you're going, man, not that one, this one, you know? And so there's something in your heart that is yearning and desiring to be married. So this does apply to you. These are words of Scripture. So Jesus-centeredness affects every area of your life. This fits, doesn't it, with what we read earlier in verse 17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. The motivation for everything that we have is Jesus Christ. So there's a few things, two things at least I want you to see before we get into the practical pieces of it. First, consistency. Consistency. There is a clear pattern in this text. The Lordship of Christ is brought to bear in every arena of life, consistently. Jesus Christ is brought to bear consistently in every area of life. The beautiful and transforming truth right here is simply the fact that Jesus can transform everything in your life beginning with your heart. That's where Jesus always starts. He doesn't start with transforming your marriage. He says, give me your heart and let me transform that. And from that, I'm going to transform every relationship, every arena in your life. Therefore, there is never a position or place in life where you cannot honor Christ. Obedience to the Lordship of Jesus is not dependent on your role or your function in this life. Matoka staff, it's not dependent on whether you are rotational staff or a res soup. It's not dependent on that. 
Jesus transforms every role and uses consistently every role for his kingdom purposes to be glorified. But not only do we see the consistency of Jesus, we also see uniqueness. There is a common theme, the, the lordship of Jesus, the way that, that, that is expressed uniquely to different people and different roles. And it's addressed right here. Children honor the lordship of Christ differently than those of their parents. Husbands do so differently than their wives. Masters do it differently than slaves. Therefore, our individual obligation is to take the roles that God has given us and, and determine the unique ways that we are to express submission to Christ. God's design is not for uniformity of roles. It's not for the uniformity of roles. His design is for the uniformity of relationship to Christ. That's what he desires. Not uniformity that everybody is exactly the same. He wants our relationship to be uniform. And, and, and this results in the unique expressions of Jesus-centeredness through god given, God-ordained, God-created roles. Now, if you think about this, this is absolutely beautiful. It acknowledges the uniqueness of the role of roles in life, but it unites them all under the banner of the Lordship of Christ. I want you to think about going into the Chicago Art Museum and you see a picture that is purely red. Now, I'm sure there will be an artist who makes a gajillion dollars off that one picture, right? Which I don't understand. It's just red. And some of us will go, hmm, red. Moving right along now. But it takes a Van Gogh a starry night for us to go, look at that. Look at this Rembrandt that is just beautiful. The details, every piece is unique and beautiful. It is multiple colors, multiple pieces. There is depth to it. There is beauty. There is light. There's darkness. There's all kinds of different things going on here. And that is what is going on here. All those pieces are needed to make a beautiful display of God's glory. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters, all have different roles, different responsibilities, but they are all united under the centrality of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. And to make it all work, we are given the Holy Spirit, praise be to God, and the command to walk by the Spirit. And why is this important? Number one, some people resist their role, their God-given role, thinking that they could obey or honor Jesus even more if their circumstances have changed. Some think their role hinders, uh, hinders complete or, or ultimate obedience. Fathers who'd, who'd rather not lead, or children who'd rather resist authority, or wives who see submission as nothing but a curse. 
employees who, who think that they know how to do their boss's job even better, or employers who try to disconnect the lordship of Christ over their daily business operations. But Jesus calls us to embrace our roles and transform them for the glory of God. But we also see why it's important is because some people think that the distinction of roles equals a difference of value or equality. They mistakenly equate value with function. You might have a husband who's a, who's a bit of a dictator a wife who believes that submission is marital slavery, a child who res resists obedience because she is a person too. I've never said that, but I may have heard it. An employee who views herself as less value, valuable than those who are on her team, or a boss who treats employees with disdain. And Jesus, Jesus takes each of those roles and gives them new value, new meaning, and new purpose. But Jesus does something even more here. He personally provides an example with his own life. He says, look at me. Don't, don't look out there. Look at me. And through my life, you will learn how to live this out. And it is going to be glorious. In other words, he shows husbands how to love their wives as Christ loved the church. He's going to show wives how to submit as unto the Lord. He's going to show children how to obey. He, he models everything that he commands. And thank God that Jesus just doesn't say, do this and figure it out. He says, look to me. Come to me and I will show you. So every role finds its meaning, its example, and its motivation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how it's done. So having a big picture of the consistency and the uniqueness in place I want us to look this morning at just two expressions of this in children and in men. Verses 18 through 21 describe roles within a family structure. And I'd like to look at, at these in a bit different order than what you find in Scripture. We're going to look at children and husbands today. And next week we're going to look at Wives and slaves and masters. Although it's not the order of the text, that grouping will be helpful because there are some, um, I'm going to say hermeneutical, um, some interpretive challenges that are, are found here specifically related to the scripture about slaves and women that I want to talk about extensively next week. So, Today, I'm going to confine my ideas to just what does it mean to be a Christ-centered husband and a Christ-centered child? God has given us each of these roles, and in these roles, He wants us to express the centrality of Jesus. So for children, that equals obedience, and for men, that means being a gentle and loving, having a gentle and loving approach to life. Let's start off with 
obedient children. Isaac, listen carefully. Children, that's my son, by the way. Children are instructed, commanded. It's in the imperative, which means you must do this. Children are instructed, obey their parents in, in what? Help me, you can talk back just so you know. Children are to obey their parents in everything. everything. Right, Lorenz? Obey their parents in everything. That's right. For this pleases the Lord. This pleases the Lord. So note that there are two key words here. Obey and please. The word to please means means that something is enjoyable. It is, it is acceptable. And this, this is something which makes something, someone happy. Obedient children make the heart of God filled with joy. And it also makes parents filled with joy, right? But primarily the focus is here, it pleases the Lord. It pleases God. When our children are obedient. So the ultimate motivation for children is not to make the happiness or joy of their parents be overflowing. It is for the joy of Jesus to please God. So the word obey is also an important word. It is directly tied to both listening and acting. In our family, we talk about listen and obey the first time. Listen and obey the, not the 10th time. Come on, get downstairs, pick up this, pick up that. Listen and obey the first time. Listen and obey. In other words, obedience means that a child hears what mom and dad say and they act upon what is said. The Bible is about links, hearing instruction, receiving instruction, and acting upon instruction. So kids, kids, I'm catching your eyes. Kids, listen, you need to realize that obedience means two things. First, listening to what your mom and dad actually say. Listen to them. And then doing what they actually say. Obedience requires both hearing and action. Kids, I, 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 I want you to treat your mom and dad's voice and their instruction like a, like a fire alarm. Not elevator music. There's a big difference, right? Having been a teacher, as soon as a fire alarm goes off, everybody's heart kind of, what do we do? And they look to, to the teacher like, and they can't even move because they're, 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 they totally forget what I'm doing in this moment. But suddenly their ears are perked up. They know action needs to be moved upon. So, okay, tell me what to do. Elevator, on the other, on, on the other hand, is um, soothing or annoying, right? Sometimes it's even like the Charlie Brown teacher. Wah, 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 wah. And Charlie's just going, right? Some of you view your, your parents' voices as, as Charlie Brown or elevator music, but a fire alarm is designed to move you towards action, towards safety, towards wholeness. 
The difference between elevator music and a fire alarm is the importance of what they are trying to communicate. Your parents' instructions are really important. The Living Bible states Proverbs 6 really beautifully here. Young man, obey your father and your mother. Tie their instructions around your finger so you do not forget. Take to heart all their advice. Every day and all night long, their counsel will lead you and save you from harm. When you wake up in the morning, let their instructions guide you into the new day. For their advice is like a beam of light directed into the dark corners of your mind to warn you of danger and to give you a good life. That's the purpose of your mom and dad. Godly parents are to direct you, to lead you, and they are there for your good. I also want you to realize that being an obedient child communicates something incredibly powerful about you and your parents and about Jesus. In a world that is rampant and going crazy with disrespect, disobedience, and outright rebellion, children who obey their parents send a powerful message to the world. Now I know very well that my children are far from perfect. They're close. One out of 365 days. But I cannot tell you how many times it has been a pleasure for Laura and me to sit in a restaurant with our children and have uh, the server say, your kids listen so well and they sit so nice. They listen to what you say. And for part of me goes, that is a reflection of obedient children who are following after Jesus, doing what pleases the Lord. Here's the reality, though. I've just got done talking to kids. You, the rest of us, are all children. We are children of who? The Lord, the Father, right? We are all children. So when he gives instructions, it is for our good. To, when he speaks, we say, yes, Lord, here I am. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What does your word say? Therefore, Lord, you have given me these words. Tell me what to do. I will be obedient. If it's for purity, yes, Lord, I will be pure. If it is to stay out of this, Lord, I will stay far away. If it is to put to death these things or to put on these things, I will put them off and I will take that off. I will do whatever you say for you are my father and you know what is best for me. For me. To balance us also out, I got to speak to parents you need to communicate that your words are important. Counselors, this is going to be true for you too. You've got to communicate that your words are actually important, that they carry weight. We call it gravitas. There's weightiness to your words. So if you're a, a long talker, some of you in orientation know who the long talkers are. They don't ever shut up. And so when they finally have something important to say, you go, Oh, did you say something? 
minimize our words and make sure our words actually have weight. We've got to be balanced out here, but we've got to be careful about repeating ourselves a hundred different times or, or, or counting one. I'm almost at a two. Three, two and a half. Three. Or multiple threats time and time again. Or I'm going to send you to the timeout chair. Whatever that is. Doing those things multiple times before actually acting, asking them to obey, which is pleasing to the Lord. Eventually, your child will learn that they really don't need to heed your words until you are serious or just plain angry. And then they move out of fear of retribution and punishment. Train your child to listen to the value of your words. Children, listen and obey. It's a way to honor Jesus. But now looking at verses 19 and 21, looking at loving and gentle men. In verses 18 and, and 21, we, we, we see men are addressed, addressed as both husbands and fathers. While these roles are different, there is something consistent between them, and it is called servant leadership. Servant leadership. A, a godly husband and a father is a gentle giant of a man. The strength of his person and his position become a platform from which he dispenses his love and he dispenses his gentleness. First, it's important to understand that the nature of a man's position, understand the position of a man's position in his home. The Bible calls men to a role of headship in the home. And that's for, in our culture, our day, in our time, that's kind of a scary kind of phrase, right? Headship? I know what that means. But that's not what it is. You look at 1 Corinthians 11, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is who? Christ. Head of every man is Christ, and the head of, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Or Ephesians 5, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So what does this mean? How does this live out? It means that God has given a man a unique, but not a better role in providing a pace-setting model for his family. A man has been given the primary responsibility for leading the home. Now understand that that does not mean the sole responsibility of leading the home. It means that a man has been given a, a call from God to be the initiator of the home. The headship of a man should neither, neither be denied nor abused. Denying it would mean that as a husband, you refuse to lead your wife. You, you refuse to allow or you refuse your husband to lead. De denying it would be incorrectly linked linking headship with value and determining the husband and wife as equal and identical roles. To abuse it would be for a husband to view himself as king of his castle and treat his family like subjects to be ruled. 
Further, it shouldn't be confused with superiority. To be a leader does not mean that you are more valuable, more intelligent, more competent. No, spiritual leadership assumes none of that. Or even, it doesn't even assume that you are, what, sorry, what it does assume is that you are responsible and that you are taking initiative. And let me just say it plainly. Men, Paul, you cannot be passive. I cannot be passive. You cannot be passive. Some of you, are, some of you guys are just saying, Paul, here's the deal. <laughs> I am a terrible planner. Just ask my wife. Terrible planner. But my wife is phenomenal out of it. She, she is just genius. So how do I lead my home in planning when my wife is so much better than me? And my answer is, I'm not suggesting that in order for you to be a leader in your home, that you do all of the planning. You need to be the one who determines what is important and decide when you are going to do it together. You, you must take the initiative. Set up the time. Utilize your wife's giftedness. That is wise spiritual leadership. Secondly, a man looks to Christ for his example and images Jesus in the roles as husband and father. In ways, in what ways is, does he accomplish this? He does this by loving his wife. In verse 19, it says this explicitly. However, there are two other texts that are very clear about how a husband looks to Christ as his, as his example and images his life after Christ. Ephesians 5, 25 through 28. You cannot ignore this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife also loves himself. Or, 1 Peter 3, verse 7, listen to this. Likewise, husbands, love your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. But the meaning is connected to how Jesus loves his church. Ephesians 5, 25 is absolutely clear for us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So a husband is to know Christ intimately. Intimately. 
and his love, know Christ's love for his church intimately in, and do it in such a way that it becomes the very model for loving his wife. Show me a woman who does not want the love that Christ gave to the church. I'd say that there are 0.0001%. To be loved like Christ loved His church, giving Himself up completely. Washing her. Making sure there's no blemish. Honoring her. Putting her forward. Every woman goes, I want that man. I want that man who loves me and honors me and washes me with the word, who disciples me and puts me up and says, look at this beautiful bride. There is something deeply beautiful, deeply spiritual about a gentle and understanding man. His understanding of his wife is directly tied to his own spiritual life. And therefore, that's why we got the statement in 1 Peter chapter 3. So that your prayers may not be hindered. It's stunning to me to think that God is not interested in answering the, answering the prayers of a man who is not interested in understanding and honoring and loving his wife. It's almost as if God is saying, listen, I know you're praying down there, but don't, don't throw another word up to me. Don't throw up another prayer, another petition, another praise, another request until you learn how to love your wife. She is a gift to you. Once you get that, oh, your prayers will be unhindered. So at the heart of this idea of loving one's wife is a deep-seated commitment, a deep-seated commitment to sacrificial and servant leadership a commitment to be like Jesus Christ himself. And this shows up in different ways. A deep, vibrant, spiritually committed man. It shows up in a willingness to lead his family spiritually. It, it shows up in a nourishing and a cherishing of his wife. It shows up in a relentless desire to make the most of the stewardship of their total lives. It shows up with an aggressive desire to resolve conflict. It shows up with a passion to understand and know the needs of the family. The third and final piece, though, of the responsibility for men relates to his words. And which is probably one of the most obvious expressions of, of servant leadership or the lack thereof. Men are cautioned here about their words. Words to their wives, and I think even by inference to their children. Men are not to be harsh with their wives or to provoke their children. In verse 19 it says, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Other translations render this statement as, don't be embittered toward them. The word for harsh means sharp, painful, 
embittered. And it's also used in James chapter 3 for the taste of bitter water or like buttermilk in a glass and slurping it all down, thinking that it was good old 2% milk. And your mouth goes, what is that? A gentle giant of a man means that you understand that words land differently on the heart of your wife. In verse 21, fathers are told to avoid provoking their children lest they become discouraged. Now there are certainly different, many ways that a father's actions can provoke Uh, bring about discouragement in their kids' lives. But I think the main way that a father can do it is through words, right? How many of you remember or can still feel the pain of some of your father's sharp words? It can be scarring, can't it? It makes you cower and want to avoid intimacy and closeness with your father because he... Listen, I told you, do this. And you're just going, and immediately what happens? Tears, walls, barriers come up. So to provoke to discouragement here means that you use language and tones that create a disheartened spirit or a crushing blow to the spirit. Words, tones, or even the absence of affirmation can easily do that. Men, all men, we've got to understand that direct, pointed, even harsh words may be the way to get stuff done at work, to get it done but they create fear, rebellion, and even chaos at home. You can get what you want and make your point with harsh words, but the end product will be a shrinking heart in loving your children and your wife. Therefore, men, I want to call you to be a loving and gentle in your demeanor that begins in your heart and comes out of your mouth. Be a gentleman. Men, embrace your God-given role. Love your wife and your children with great tenderness and compassion. Let your words be gracious and flavor your home. Think about how that Manitoba staff, how that could impact your summer ministry. Where the men are gentle giants, not lording over, but using their words to call towards obedience in a way that pleases the Lord, where children are affirmed and cared for. Your, your co-workers, the women that you work with, are feeling honored and not despised in a subclass of person, but they're valued, important. It radically changes the way ministry and life is done. Ultimately, we see here that everything is connected to Jesus. Everything. 
And I find it stunning that everything that we talked about this morning, from, from the overview to the specifics regarding children or men, I find it stunning that Jesus became the ultimate pace setter for us. Being obedient children or loving and gentle men flow out of an understanding of what Jesus is like. We look to Him and we follow Him in the various roles that God has given us. Consider the following. Jesus became a human being, embracing a subservient role to the Father, even though He is equally God. We get that in Philippians 2, right? Who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. But we also see that Jesus was obedient. Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father, learning obedience through suffering. We see that in Hebrews 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience though what he, through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. We also see that Jesus initiated reconciliation, pursued us when we were undeserving, paid the greatest price, and it continues to be faithful in spite of our countless fail, failures. Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does for the church. So headship and loving my wife can combine into this beautiful, powerful motivation to do what's right. Obedience to parents finds its source and strength in a desire and a motivation to please the Lord first and foremost. A Jesus-centered home, a Jesus-centered home is filled with people with different roles. But the unifying commitment is to honor the Lordship of Christ. Children, you do that through obedience. Men, we do it through intentional servant leadership. All of us, children, husbands, next week, wives and, and slaves and masters, we are all called to ultimately be like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and how we are finding ourselves underneath the banner of Christ, the one who saves, the one who redeems, the one who brings us together into a family called the church, the body of Christ. Lord, I, I thank you for how you have created us to reflect what is beautiful. 
And Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper, I ask that we will come with right hearts. Examining ourselves, identifying where we have been lacking initiative, worshiping other gods, the gods of this culture, and not giving our whole self to You. So Father, take these words, plant them in our hearts, and may they grow to be oaks of righteousness. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.